Welcome everyone to another episode of Floor is Rising. Today we have a special emergency podcast because Damien Hurst has just announced a new drop, a $20 million drop called The Currency, sponsored by Handy.com. And, you know, because there's a lot of hype around this thing. I was watching the video on this drop. I noticed that in the video, they showed sort of making of videos. And in one of the scenes, it actually showed that the person making the dots on the paper was not Hearst himself. It was some kind of assistant. If the person making some of this stuff is not actually Damien Hearst himself, is that actually important or, or, or not so important? Well, Sabretooth, I think maybe it's good to start with, with saying that in some cases, actually in, in almost all cases from, and this dates back to you know the days of Andy Warhol. And of course, Warhol being one of the foremost pop artists, his work was precisely about the fact that it could be reproduced, right? So he worked with various mediums, the famous portraits of celebrities like Marilyn Monroe, there were screen printed, there were editions, and he basically pioneered the idea that the artist was a kind of impresario, right? A stage director. So he would orchestrate all the operations pertaining to the work. And in many cases, he was kind of the artistic director, right? That actually testifies to the clout of the artist. If the artist can employ legions of assistants to actually make the paintings, it shows that obviously that artist has reached a certain code of mass. And in an ironic way, I guess, that is a kind of indirect endorsement of the kind of longevity of the work or the kind of power that it has. There's been a sense in the NFT community that a lot of sort of quote unquote outsiders you know, people who sort of were not part of the NFT community before the big boom see the NFT world as, as a cash grab, where they can sort of bring their clout into the NFT world, use that clout to sell NFTs at a specific markup, and then just take that money and run without really putting that money back into the, so the NFT ecosystem. With regard to, to Damien Hurst, it's a bit tricky, right? Because his mm. work actually lends itself very well to the context of NFTs. And by that, I mean, you know, obviously this drop is based on a very well-known series of his that has been around since about 2016 called Color Space, Color Space Paintings. But even before that, he worked with these dots, right? And they were known as just the dot paintings. And the difference is that they used to be much more geometrical. So the dots were arranged in grids with regular space between them. And they just kind of were arranged in rows on the canvas. The color space paintings, which then, you know, they, they kind of evolved into around 2016, and which is in the style that's almost identical, I would say, to the, the drop that he's doing here on Hini. And the difference was that they were much denser and they were, you know, almost like an all over um, quantilist style. And the difference there was that they were no longer so regularly arranged in grids. They were more free. And if you look closely, the dots themselves were not, uh, you could still sense that they were hand-painted as opposed to the dots, which were much more crisp, you know, in terms of the, the outlines and stuff. So there's an existing evolution of the dot and the spot motif with, uh, with Hearst. Of course, now that he's dropping it as an FT, we have another kind of perspective on it. And that has to do with the fact of how the spots are arranged 
the kinds of colors that's, that are in a particular work, the position, the size. And, you know, he's introduced this element of kind of trying to regularize or think about the paintings in terms of the parameters, like the rarity of certain color combinations. So I think as a series, as an addition of 10,000, they are an interesting case study where a contemporary artist with existing clout is just kind of porting over an existing style to the NFT space. And in a way that allows us to kind of like look at the work, appreciate it in a very kind of parametric way. When I look at this, I see some very, very obvious delineations of how uh, how the NFT medium has, has affected this drop. It very much looks like a generative piece of art that you would be able to find on, on sites like Art Blogs. And then we have sort of the, the, the rarity, the standard rarity, right? You, you've got the overlap, strips, texture, density. These are the, the rarity traits, which once again, a staple of the sort of NFT collector series. And there's the addition of 10,000, which is obviously by no accident, the very first sort of NFT collectible CryptoPunks was an addition of 10,000. And, and since then, I think he's a very sly and canny artist. He has a very good sense of the zeitgeist. And he no doubt has been following what's been happening in the space, at least for the past year. I am not sure how literate he is on the technical side of NFTs, but I, I'm very sure that He's observed the kind of, you know, the styles of works that are, that have proved to be popular, ranging from, you know, Beeple and Park and, and all of that. And obviously there's a range. And I suspect that he saw a opportunity to kind of, um, as I said, he, he didn't really invent a different style for a new platform. I think a lot of artists are thinking, you know, what would be a good style of work? So he was an artist that was using a very, one might argue, one of the, the most elementary components of painting, which is the dot, right? And we've seen that artists have tried over the course of art history to kind of reduce painting to formal elements, to make it self-referential, to talk about what are the things that, what are the kind of formal elements that make up a painting and whether that painting is representational whether it's abstract, whether it's figurative. All these things, I think, were issues that kind of orbited around the, the spot painting series when he first came up with it. So there are all these kind of more art historical issues that I think are very relevant and may not be, again, very obvious to an observer that isn't familiar with Hearst or, or the history of contemporary art. Since we're talking about a drop that hasn't happened yet, I think something that's top on everyone's mind is... You know, each one of these are $2,000, makes up for $2,000. The whole collection is $20 million. Is it worth it? He made history back in 2008 at Sotheby's. And I think this is one of those things where, you know, it was one of those very strange uh, convergences because obviously 2008, that was just the eve of financial crisis. And in fact, I believe it was the evening sale. It was actually the same day that Lehman Brothers de declared bankruptcy, but they were very concerned that given the kind of very grave signals in the financial world that, you know, this, this auction was badly timed. Mm -hmm. Of course, as it turns out, it went on to be massively successful. It grossed $200 million. If you look back at the history of contemporary art in the last 20 years, that has been the case. There's always been a kind of strange inverse correlation between 
the health of the wider financial market and the contemporary art market because it's seen as a kind of safe haven for capital to fly to when you know the markets are kind of shaky the market has taken a bit of a tumble you know most things you know bitcoin ethereum is down you know 60 70 percent some of the other stuff is down more than that while the broader crypto market has fallen the nft market actually has sort of boomed over the past month or two so you know there is some anecdotal evidence to suggest that maybe the behaviors that you see in the traditional art market versus the stock market is uh is sort of replicating the nft versus the crypto market i actually think that a huge target market of this are basically crypto native people who are not necessarily that drawn in by the existing sort of nft market you know they are in the crypto scene they have a lot of crypto and the combination of Hearst's sort of street cred his clout in the traditional world and the fact that he's on nft might actually persuade a lot of these people to basically spend significant amounts of money on this particular drop so i can see that that's the case and you have to apply to be on a waiting list to be able to buy this and when you apply there's there's sort of a few buckets that you can fall into one is sort of the pleb bucket where you just apply with an email and then you just wait there's another bucket where you connect your metamask wallet and if you hold sort of blue chip nfts so we're talking about crypto punks Board Ape Yacht Club, um, et cetera, et cetera. If you hold these sort of blue chip NFTs, supposedly there is a bucket for you where you, you'll be allocated away from the general pleb market. And then, more interestingly, there's another bucket that is if you hold DeFi tokens. So not, not NFTs, but just general tokens. You can go into that bucket as well. So it really seems that they're structuring this drop in a in a similar way to sort of a traditional gatekeeping model. What are your thoughts about that? I think it's no different from the way that in the traditional world, it's very typical for galleries, for example, to prioritize certain collectors based on whether, for example, they're known to be speculators or flippers. But more than that, it's, it's things like, are these well-regarded members of the bigger you know, business financial community, for example, who our patrons of museums who sit on you know boards of prestigious institutions and at the very top level who are likely to actually donate their collections to to the museums that that you know they, they support so these are kind of very pertinent considerations i think obviously for this drop then it raises the question of whether the nft space is going to kind of bifurcate in that sense where there's a more so-called democratic arena where artists can you know basically win followings that don't port over any of their <laughs> clout from another context, a traditional art context. And secondly, that there's, maybe there's going to be a space where that is going to be the case, where the rules of the traditional contemporary art world are going to apply. One of the, probably the, the most interesting things about this particular drop that we've kind of haven't, haven't talked about yet is that there is both a physical and a NFT component to it. And these two things are not separate, but I would say competitive against each other, right? And so what happens is that they're going to sell these so MNT, NFTs, but they have the physical version as well. And what the collector can choose to do, uh, and they have, I think, a year to, to do this, is that they can choose to either keep the NFT, in which case the physical version will be burned, 
or they can choose to keep the physical version uh, and then the NFT will be burnt. So you have to sort of make a choice before a certain point in time. I think that is um, in a large part behind the concept. This is one of the things that Hearst is trying to explore, this sort of interaction between between physical and NFT. And it, it sets up this giant sort of game theory experiment as to, you know, do you choose to keep the NFT or do you choose to keep the, the, the physical? You know, my, my, my first instinct is just, he's gone to the trouble of actually making the 10,000 objects. And I personally would be very pained to see whatever percentage of the collection, the collector base choose to burn the thing. So if you then also decide to get rid of the physical object and just keep the token, then it's kind of like burning a work, but still having the certificate of authenticity. In many traditional, traditional art settings, a lot of works, you also get the certificate signed by the artist, right? And it doesn't make sense to, to burn the object and just keep a certificate because they're not interchangeable in that sense. And that depends if you see the NFT as a certificate of ownership or whether you see the NFT as a piece of art in itself, right? Right. <laughs> I think that's, that's probably the experiment, right? Because obviously, if you see the NFT as a certificate of ownership, then it doesn't make any sense to, to privilege that over the actual physical object, right? Because the physical object is the art and the NFT is a certificate of ownership. But I think the, the game theory that's set up is that what if everyone sees the physical art as the object and then the, the NFT as a certificate of ownership, so nobody burns? Then what if only like a few people burn? What if like only 10 people out of 10,000 burn it? And so there's only 10 NFTs around. Well. I mean, you would think game theory would dictate that if there's 9,990 physical objects and only 10 NFTs, that those NFTs are going to be worth like a lot more, right? The physical objects have extremely good authentication mechanism on it, right? So it looks like a lot of attention was paid to making sure that each physical object has sort of a maximum amount of authentication, authenticity, right? So it's not just about you know, there's a piece of paper with dots on it, but, you know, each one contains a, a personalized sort of Dane Hurst, not just a signature, but even like a signature phrase, which is completely different on each one. It contains like a micro dot. Um, there's some sort of unique ink blotting going on. When you delve into it, there's loads and loads and loads of these things that, that mark each physical object as, as unique. They talk about a bridge that you can bridge an NFT from the Palm blockchain onto the Ethereum blockchain. Now, to me, this is very problematic because the whole point of an NFT is that it's non-fungible, right? You have this non-fungible token that represents sort of the unique, whatever it is that is representing it's unique. But if you are able to bridge an NFT from Palm to Ethereum, how can a bridged NFT stay unique? Because if something bridges, that means that a separate, I mean, we're getting the technical, but a separate NFT must be created. So there must be two NFTs now, one on the Palm blockchain and one on the Ethereum blockchain. So now you have two NFTs. Even if you burn the one on the Palm blockchain, so you only have the one on the Ethereum blockchain, what you're doing now is you're destroying the provenance of that particular NFT. So to me, this is very problematic. <laughs> when I look at uh, the details of the, of the NFTs. That's something that is kind of new because previously, as far back as like 2016, 
when I first did the spot paintings and the color space paintings, the titles were quite generic. You know, he used the names of chemical compounds, for example, before, some of which were chosen for the colors that they were because the dots were a certain color. And then for the dot paintings, he also chose, you know, titles of, of plants like thistle, morning dew, weed, things like that. And obviously they were kind of red herring because the, the paintings did nothing of the sort. And for this drop, he's done the same. So apparently each of the titles has been taken from songs that he likes, I assume pop songs, like lyrics, through some kind of machine learning algorithm. Like he's picked certain very short phrases from each of these songs. The rarity of these pieces is going to be measured at some level moving forward based on the words that are in it, in each of these titles and the content of the phrases. Well, let's, let's do some predictions since that's what we're in the job here to do. To do. <laughs> <laughs> I'll start with, with my predictions based on just my experience. What's interesting for me to predict is what is going to be the price differences between the, these 10,000 pieces? Because when I look at the, each of the pieces themselves, visually, it's very difficult to tell them apart. You can tell sort of maybe the density is something that immediately jumps at you, but it's, it's not a collection where someone can look at a piece and, and it's very easy to tell, like, for example, that this piece is a more common piece or this piece is a, you know, is a very rare piece like, like some other collectibles, where it's extremely easy to tell. So... But I have found that, especially in the NFT collectible market, that doesn't matter whether it's difficult to tell. The collectors want some sort of differentiation between the different pieces. So I predict that the title is going to be probably the most, I would say the title and the number. So, you know, all these pieces are numbered from sort of one to 10,000. I predict that, you know, titles that are very recognizable, you know, a very popular phrase or numbers of, you know, round numbers are, are going to fetch uh, big premiums. I'm kind of the opposite view, actually. Even though he's revealed that, you know, they're they're taken from songs or lyrics that he likes. And obviously the number is just a kind of fixed quantity that has nothing to do with the work. On the other hand, the, the kind of metrics that are provided, like overlaps, the drips, texture, density. I mean, we take it on good faith that, you know, they, they've been analyzed in a very objective way and that these are the numerical kind of quantities that are objective. And I think obviously at some level, one can always express a very clear difference for the just more sparse as opposed to more dense and all of that. So those are maybe difficult to, at first glance, pick out. Let's say out of this 10,000 collection, right? Which 100 pieces would you expect to fetch the highest prices? Or, or do you think that there is not going to be much differentiation between the pieces at all, that every, everything is going to be round out the same? with maybe little variations here and there. Let's say the 10 pieces with the highest density factor are the rarest ones. Then I think that would be an objective metric to go by. But I can't help but feel that given the format of it and the way that you know he's been able to quantify certain formal and stylistic attributes of the works, I think it would be a shame to not kind of really give those our attention because I think that you know, some works to me are, are more visually compelling because of the, the lightness and darkness of the colors and density and all that. I, I personally think that the denser ones are more engaging at a visual level. Okay, so this is this is good. We're, this is uh, we're going to be making sort of opposite predictions that uh, we'll, we'll come back to it in a you know a few months and see see what it is. I mean, I'll go even further and I'll say like, yeah, not only are the numbers and the titles going to be important. 
for example, I think it, I think it's it's a foregone conclusion that the first hundred, you know, from one to a hundred are going to fetch a premium. Foregone conclusion that I think most people are going to be viewing this basically using apophenia, where they're going to be <laughs> they're going to be looking at these dots and they're going to be like, oh my god, I think I see the mother Mary in this one. <laughs> That's going to fetch a huge price. Or they're going to see Jesus in it. So I, I can see that. You know, some of these with especially sort of apophenic images in, in some of these are, are going to fetch premiums. <laughs> this is a very good test to see, you know, what's what's going to drive the pricing in this collection. Is it, is it going to be sort of the very casual sort of collectible mindset or is it going to be a more formal sort of art analysis of the collection? So that'll be very interesting to keep an eye on in the future. We're arguing at cost purposes and the fact that there's so many parameters that really one can latch on to, I think, is for me that that really testifies to kind of richness of the project. So there, there are many kind of features that are probably going to appeal to different people. Cool, another great episode. Thank you, Kizu.